Growing concern about school exposures. I have full confidence that Vancouver Coastal is doing what we need them to do. Parents worry about inconsistencies in COVID reporting. West Coast storm watching takes a dangerous turn. Too close to the edge and they got washed in the surge. Big waves lead to a dramatic rescue in Euclid. And murder by milkshake. Wow, that is somebody that my dad that I did not really know. The CKNW radio host who turned out to be a psychopath in the 1960s crime of the decade. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. COVID-19 and the inconsistencies when it comes to revealing exposures in B.C. schools is where we'll start tonight, right after we check today's COVID-19 numbers. We have 148 new confirmed infections. That brings our total to 8,543 cases for the province. Sadly, we've lost two more people, which means 229 have now died in B.C. from complications of the virus. 61 people are in hospital, 20 of those patients in ICU. 6,917 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 1,371 active cases and 3,417 in isolation. Dr. Henry is now urging British Columbians to get back to basics to reduce the risks. When deciding where to go and who to see, we all need to take a moment to think about two things. We need to consider the risks we're going into, how many people will be there, what is the environment, is it indoors, is it outdoors? And we also need to consider the risks that we will be bringing with us when we leave. And there is some confusion and some criticism as to why some COVID-19 school exposures are being posted and others are not. Vancouver Coastal Health seems to post on a need-to-know basis that's defended by Vancouver's top doctor today and backed up by Dr. Henry. But as Jordan Armstrong reports, some say that approach lacks transparency. Mixed signals about school exposures, different approaches, different districts, different health authorities. Other health authorities in BC are, are listing any COVID exposures in their schools, on their websites, and making that information available. Uh, Vancouver Coastal Health has taken a different approach. On its website, Vancouver Coastal Health lists just two school exposures, whereas on Fraser Health's site, there are 15, and that's just in Surrey. I would just rather deal with the facts and what we know on the ground to the best of our ability, rather than, you know, myth and rumor, and people are going to talk. <laughs> Speaking on CKNW, the Chief Medical Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health seemed to favor a different approach, saying staff will notify the public of school exposures when they decide it's necessary. We don't want to unnecessarily create anxiety among parents by providing information that may, may cause them to believe that their child is at risk when they're not. So that's why we have to have a balanced approach. Now, here's how BC's top doctor responded to a question about the confusion on Monday. There is one province-wide approach, and uh, I think there was some um, perhaps misunderstanding when we first were posting these up, but uh, we expect that Vancouver Coastal would adhere to what everybody else is doing as well as our provincial standard. And here's what she said Thursday. I think it's uh, somewhat unfortunate that there's been some um, reporting on, on some of the de details around this. 
I have full confidence that Vancouver Coastal is doing what we need them to do and that we are all in alignment. I've heard of a number of exposures in Vancouver schools that have been confirmed but not listed on their website. So I think that kind of gap in information just creates a lot more anxiety. The confusion thickens. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. And Dr. Bonnie Henry was also asked again today about the threats that she's received since she began leading B.C. through the pandemic. And while she admits it's been difficult, she says it's far more positive than negative. It has been a challenge, and this has started early on in January, um, where um, some people, um, and you know, it doesn't surprise me in many ways, when people are anxious and afraid, some people's reaction is to, is to lash out in anger, in frustration, and, and these were unprecedented times. Um, so I am doing fine, I, and I have a strong sense of community, uh, my neighbours, my friends, my family, to support me. Um, and I really appreciate the support that I get from people in our community here in B.C. Port Coquitlam residents can enjoy a beer or a bite outside for at least another year. The city voted this week to extend the program that allows restaurants and businesses to serve customers in outdoor spaces until October of 2021. The city has been a leader in making public spaces like streets, sidewalks and parks open for people to enjoy a drink or dinner during the pandemic. Last week, the province announced temporary expanded service areas could operate until next year as long as they get permission from the municipality. Day three of the B.C. election campaign with both the NDP and Liberal leaders once again spending time in the same battleground. This time it's Maple Ridge. Despite trying to focus on local issues, John Horgan once again faced questions about what critics call an unnecessary election. Paul Johnson reports. It's great to be in a place that just three and a half years ago, Bob and Lisa and I visited and behind us was a homeless encampment that had been left to us by the former BC Liberal government. Zeroing in on the hot button topics of homelessness and addiction, the NDP leader campaigned in the Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge area Thursday where homeless encampments in the past have made many feel public safety is deteriorating. The region's two ridings are up for grabs this fall. Classic swing districts that have been held by both the NDP and the Liberals within the past decade. I gotta go with John, he's done a hell of a job. But what would normally be the top local issues seem to be eclipsed this year by the defining issue of our era, the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's been handled. And on that, things get more complicated. Most of the people we spoke with give Horgan's government high marks for its handling of the pandemic, even people who've never voted NDP. But about half of them tell us they don't buy his reason for calling the election now, and that bothers them. But I think that the real reason is that he's leading the popularity poll and he thinks he's going to win a majority government. There was no reason for it. I think we could have waited a year and just got through everything. That sentiment has been material for opposition talking points all week, with Green leader Sonia Furstenau attacking Horgan for the election call and Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson pouncing on it Thursday on his swing through Ridge Meadows. We're all coming to the conclusion that the Premier, well, John Horgan's credibility on the time of this election is in shreds. No one trusts his answers anymore. If the NDP calculated that their handling of the pandemic would outshine their decision to try and win an election during it, 
week one of the campaign shows that may still be an open question. In Pitt Meadows, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the battleground that is Maple Ridge Mission. Mm -hmm. And Keith, what does history tell us about what might happen in October? Yeah, I can't find a more closely contested uh, region of the province, uh, election after election after election, than Maple Ridge and and that area there, Pitt Meadows and Mission. Uh, And it's been going on for decades. Starting in 1979, the margin of victory is usually less than 1,000. Take a look at uh, the more foremost recent elections. Last one, won by the NDP by just 325 votes in Mission, 2013, slightly larger for the B.C. Liberals. Bit of an outlier there, but back to really small numbers in 2009 and Pitt Meadows is a little less competitive, a little more friendly to the NDP. They've won the seat there more than the Liberals. Mission is more friendly to the Liberals. But history tells us it's a very close region, and you're going to see John Horgan and Andrew Wilkinson campaign out there uh, far more than just today. There's more visits ahead there. Reason for voters to be engaged out in those Mm -hmm. districts for sure. All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we're going to vote in Mm -hmm. October because requests for mail-in ballots are off the charts at Election BC. Yeah. Unbelievable. Elections BC now releasing numbers that I don't think anybody thought possible for some time. Very few people traditionally vote via mail, but take a look at some of the numbers that uh, are being provided to us by Elections BC. Already 160,000 have been requested mail packages. That compares to just 6,500 in 2017. That number, Chris, 160, that's going to grow. It may approach 1 million. That's how many people are going to be voting by mail. As a result, we're not going to have, you and I'll be on, with Sophie on the election night desk, we're not going to have the results that night. We're going to have to wait a few weeks till all those ballots are counted. Wow. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Three years ago, the NDP promised thousands of new affordable child care spaces, but as they fight for re-election, their opponents point out they have fallen far short. The NDP blamed the delay on their former governing partners, the B.C. Greens. And just like that, child care is becoming a key election issue. Brad McLeod reports. The campaign topic du jour, daycare. We reduced fees for childcare up to $350 a month. Advocated from the very beginning that we move early childhood education into the public education system. And the cost will vary to a degree between the family's resources. The province-wide shortage in childcare influencing many British Columbian voters. It can be a, a difficult day for parents when they can't secure care. Belinda Macy connects families in the capital region to childcare, even counselling those who've just conceived to consider looking. Some of the wait lists with the larger quality centres, um, they're in excess of 100 families. Six municipalities around the capital region recently commissioned a survey to see how serious the shortage was. 65% of kids aged 3 to 5 can find a spot. That dropped significantly for school-age kids. Only 42% could find care. And the largest shortfall for infants and toddlers. Just 37% of the need can be met. John Horgan sticking to his $10 a day plan. Because the Green Party would not support the $10 a day plan. We absolutely supported the outcomes at the $10 a day child care program. First and now blasting back with photographic evidence of her collaborating with then NDP MLA Katrina Chen on child care issues. The BC Liberals ignored the importance of ensuring that families had access to affordable, quality, accessible child care. The Liberal leader claiming the NDP exaggerated their record on child care creation. It's not 24,000, 
it's 3,600. And while parties politic, a trend emerging for many who can't find care. An upswing in people wanting to open up their small, informal, home-based programs right now. Macy says people are allowed to care for two additional children and charge for it. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. It is sentencing day for two drivers who both hit the same pedestrian. The young woman did not survive, and after learning the punishment today, some say it does nothing to give her justice. That's in just over a minute. The crowd's reaction to seeing Donald Trump at the memorial for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg coming up later on the news hour. And United Airlines tries something new to get passengers more comfortable with flying again. Will it work? That's a little later. Right now, though, two drivers have been sentenced for the 2018 death of a 14-year-old Brazilian exchange student in Burnaby. The two men were separately convicted of driving without due care and attention when they both struck the young woman as she used a crosswalk, devastating the victim's family. Aaron MacArthur has the details. Uh, I keep them in my prayer every day. Kai Manchu, one of two men convicted in the 2018 death of Fernanda Girotto. The Brazilian exchange student was crossing Caribou Road near Highway 1 in Burnaby on a stormy January morning when she was struck by two different vehicles. You're coming back this afternoon, right? Paul Oliver Wong was the first person to collide with the teenager with his truck. As he was stopped in the middle of the road with his hazard lights flashing, Chu swerved around, crossing a double yellow line, and hit the girl again who was prone in the middle of the road. She was dragged 40 meters before he could stop. Both convicted of driving with undue care and attention. And Thursday in provincial court, both were sentenced to pay a $1,600 fine. One of these things that could happen to any of us. said there are no winners in this case. Exactly, exactly. Justice David St. Pierre said there was no evidence of criminal behavior at trial. Drugs and alcohol weren't factors. Neither man was speeding, nor were they on their phones at the time of the collision. The judge said there was a momentary lapse of judgment. Both men failed to meet the standard society expects of drivers. And the fine on the upper end of the sentencing range. The girl's family in Brazil had victim impact statements read into the court record, but no one attended the sentencing in person. The judge calling this a tragedy. The pedestrian crossing along Caribou Road was the scene of a number of collisions and near misses over the years. The city of Burnaby finally upgraded the crosswalk, weeks after Fernanda Girota's death. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Five B.C. residents are among those charged in connection with a drug bust in northern Alberta. More than a quarter of a million dollars in drugs and cash was seized as part of a drug trafficking investigation called Project Incumbent, conducted Monday in Grand Prairie. Among the eight people charged, Kevin Bay from Langley and Taylor Edgren from Pitt Meadows. Arrest warrants have been issued for five others, including Christine Eames and Christopher Gilead from Langley and Matthew Hull from Duncan. Anyone with information on their whereabouts is asked to contact RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Now, it was a police call-out that ended up with the shooting death of 54-year-old Jaw Din inside his Maple Ridge home. 
The Independent Investigation Office has determined the RCMP officers did nothing wrong and there is no evidence to support claims of police misconduct made by Din's family. Catherine Urquhart has the details. Last year, Ja Din was shot and killed by a Maple Ridge RCMP officer responding to a mental health call. Now the Independent Investigations Office has released a report announcing it is not recommending criminal charges against the Mountie. We are speechless. We, it is indescribable, you know, how today is very, very, very sad day for us. It was August 2019 when Din's family phoned police saying they needed help. The 54-year-old man with schizophrenia was having paranoid delusions. When officers arrived, Din refused to be taken to hospital. He threw a weight at officers. When they attempted to taser him, he charged them with a knife, and the officer opened fire. He attempted to stab the officer, who managed to move out of the way. He again tried to slash the officer. It was only at this point that the subject officer shot him. Din's family has repeatedly called for criminal charges against the officer. In their 21-page report, the IIO concludes the death is tragic, but not criminal. The agency also dismisses some of the claims made by a family member. She would not have been able to see into the room and to see what she says she saw. He just totally ignored the truth, the truthful evidence the family member submitted. Could a mental health expert have made a difference at the scene? The IAO says maybe, maybe not. There's no question that additional mental health resources can be valuable in these situations. But my experience has shown that it's not always that simple. The IAO says it interviewed six civilians, two paramedics and three police officers and reviewed all the other evidence before making a decision. We would like to have a public inquiry into this case. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Up next, the BC researcher getting very close to a COVID treatment. Within one or two days, the virus disappeared in the blood system. Why it works and how soon it could be available. Also a warning for storm watchers after a very close call in Euclid. Traffic is steady over here in both directions at the Portman Bridge and further into Surrey. Good news just cleared a truck that lost its load northbound on 176th Street at 80th Avenue. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Portman Bridge. The crowd's reaction to seeing Donald Trump at the memorial for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg coming up later on the news hour. And United Airlines tries something new to get passengers more comfortable with flying again. Will it work? That's a little later. Right now, though, two drivers have been sentenced for the 2018 death of a 14-year-old Brazilian exchange student in Burnaby. The two men were separately convicted of driving without due care and attention when they both struck the young woman as she used a crosswalk, devastating the victim's family. Aaron MacArthur has the details. Uh, I keep them in my prayer every day. Kai Manchu, one of two men convicted in the 2018 death of Fernanda Girotto. The Brazilian exchange student was crossing Caribou Road near Highway 1 in Burnaby on a stormy January morning when she was struck 
by two different vehicles. You're coming back this afternoon, right? Paul Oliver Wong was the first person to collide with the teenager with his truck. As he was stopped in the middle of the road with his hazard lights flashing, Chu swerved around, crossing a double yellow line, and hit the girl again who was prone in the middle of the road. She was dragged 40 meters before he could stop. Both convicted of driving with undue care and attention. And Thursday in provincial court, both were sentenced to pay a $1,600 fine. One of these things that could happen to any of us. The peasant said there are no winners in this case. Exactly, exactly. Justice David St. Pierre said there was no evidence of criminal behavior at trial. Drugs and alcohol weren't factors. Neither man was speeding, nor were they on their phones at the time of the collision. The judge said there was a momentary lapse of judgment. Both men failed to meet the standard society expects of drivers. And the fine on the upper end of the sentencing range. The girl's family in Brazil had victim impact statements read into the court record, but no one attended the sentencing in person. The judge calling this a tragedy. The pedestrian crossing along Caribou Road was the scene of a number of collisions and near misses over the years. The city of Burnaby finally upgraded the crosswalk, weeks after Fernanda Girota's death. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Five B.C. residents were among those charged in connection with a drug bust in northern Alberta. More than a quarter of a million dollars in drugs and cash was seized as part of a drug trafficking investigation called Project Incumbent, conducted Monday in Grand Prairie. Among the eight people charged, Kevin Bay from Langley and Taylor Edgren from Pitt Meadows. Arrest warrants have been issued for five others, including Christine Eames and Christopher Gilead from Langley and Matthew Hull from Duncan. Anyone with information on their whereabouts is asked to contact RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Now, it was a police call-out that ended up with the shooting death of 54-year-old Jaw Din inside his Maple Ridge home. The Independent Investigation Office has determined the RCMP officers did nothing wrong and there is no evidence to support claims of police misconduct made by Din's family. Catherine Urquhart has the details. Last year, Jaw Din was shot and killed by a Maple Ridge RCMP officer responding to a mental health call. Now, the Independent Investigations Office has released a report announcing it is not recommending criminal charges against the Mountie. We are speechless. We, it is indescribable, you know, how today is very, very, very sad day for us. It was August 2019 when Din's family phoned police saying they needed help. The 54-year-old man with schizophrenia was having paranoid delusions. When officers arrived, Din refused to be taken to hospital. He threw a weight at officers. When they attempted to taser him, he charged them with a knife, and the officer opened fire. He attempted to stab the officer, who managed to move out of the way. He again tried to slash the officer. It was only at this point that the subject officer shot him. Din's family has repeatedly called for criminal charges against the officer. In their 21-page report, the IIO concludes the death is tragic, but not criminal. The agency also dismisses some of the claims made by a family member. She would not have been able to see into the room and to see what she says she saw. He just totally ignored the truth, the truthful evidence the family member submitted. Could a mental health expert have made a difference at the scene? The IIO says maybe, maybe not. There's no question 
that additional mental health resources can be valuable in these situations, but my experience has shown that it's not always that simple. The IIO says it interviewed six civilians, two paramedics, and three police officers and reviewed all the other evidence before making a decision. We would like to have a public inquiry into this case. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Up next, the BC researcher getting very close to a COVID treatment. Within one or two days, the virus disappeared in the blood system. Why it works and how soon it could be available. Also a warning for storm watchers after a very close call in Euclid. Steady over here in both directions at the Portman Bridge and further into Surrey. Good news just cleared a truck that lost its load northbound on 176th Street at 80th Avenue. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Portman Bridge. The Wild West Coast almost claimed the lives of two people who didn't account for the big waves that nearly swept them out to sea. Other hikers on the Wild Pacific Trail in Euclid came to the rescue Wednesday afternoon when two people were swept off the rocks and into the water of a tidal pool. A mother and daughter heard the cries for help, and with the effort of other bystanders, they were able to pull them to relative safety and waited for emergency crews to arrive. We came across people um, yelling for help because there were some folks that were out in the water. It's quite stormy out here in Yukulit. Um And we did our best to try to get them out of the water and safe and sound on dry land before medical personnel came. Well, we ran down to the rocks. She was with an injured person. And we managed to call first responders and uh, group of guys that helped us out and we managed to get the guy out of the rock pool. RCMP say a man was hospitalized with serious head injuries. A woman was also hospitalized with possible hypothermia. Sea levels at the time of the incident were high and people are advised to be careful of hiking in the area and stay well back of the waves. United Airlines is rolling out a rapid COVID-19 testing program for passengers about to board a plane. I'm getting tested. The rapid testing is an option for people traveling to Hawaii out of San Francisco Airport. With proof of a negative COVID test result, travelers will be able to waive the mandated two-week quarantine upon arrival. The program is set to begin October 15th. If successful, United hopes to expand testing options to major hubs like New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. The airline sees this as a major step to the return of international travel. Well, of course, the world is desperately waiting for a successful COVID-19 vaccine. But even before that, there will still need to be effective treatments. Details from a clinical study of a breakthrough drug appear to show real promise. And as Linda Aylesworth reports, it all began with a UBC researcher's work on the SARS outbreak 15 years ago. Since the emergence of COVID-19, 1,200 clinical studies have been registered around the world. But one of them, led by UBC professor Joseph Penninger, had a head start. Many years ago, uh, when there was a researcher in Toronto, they actually co-discovered angiotensin converting enzyme ACE2. A few years later, in 2002, when the SARS pandemic was raising havoc, Dr. Penninger made another discovery. 
and it turned out the SARS virus used ACE2 to infect us. Here's how. The virus is covered with spiky proteins that fit into ACE2 receptors on healthy cells. Like a key in a lock, it opens the door. And in the case of SARS, it begins assaulting the lungs. And for many, many years, we developed this drug against lung failure. Testing of that drug, APN01, was put on hold when SARS went away. And then COVID-19 came along and we realized immediately this should be actually the, one of the most rational therapies because it locks the door for the virus. Clinical trials have been underway for months now and a promising report on the very first COVID-19 patient to receive the drug, a 45-year-old woman on life support, has just been published. What happened is within one or two days the virus disappeared in the blood system, also in, the, in, in her lungs, that she is now back home and healthy. Not only does APN01 block the virus from replicating, it seems to protect against the fatal effects of the disease. So the hope is it protects the heart and the lung and other tissues from failing. And while it seems to have done exactly that for the first patient, the results of many more cases in the double-blind study have yet to be revealed. But we are not allowed to know the data until the last patient is treated and followed up for one month. If all goes well, the treatment could be approved for use as early as next year. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. And still ahead, a woman running blind. After a night out, was approached by a man who claimed to be an Uber driver. The traumatic event that changed her life and how it inspired her to run blindfolded. And backlash against Hootsuite, why the Canadian tech company is now rejecting a big contract with the U.S. government. 60 years of bringing you the stories that shape our history. 60 years of Global BC. In partnership with Connect Hearing, your hearing is important. Take care of it. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge this evening. Do keep in mind, though, you'll find lane closures during the overnight hours for maintenance in both directions. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. U.S. President Donald Trump was met with a chorus of boos and chants of vote him out while paying his respects to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg today, just two days before he announces his nominee to replace her on the high court. Trump was accompanied by the First Lady as they visited Ginsburg, lying in repose for the second straight day at the Supreme Court. On Friday, she will lie in state at the Capitol, the first woman ever to get that honor. Ginsburg passed away last week at the age of 87 from pancreatic cancer. Another night of unrest and protest across the U.S. following yesterday's much-anticipated grand jury decision in the case of Breonna Taylor, who was shot to death by police during a botched drug raid in Kentucky. Demonstrations turned violent in her hometown of Louisville, where two police officers were shot. Mourners gather like they have for the better part of six months in a city boarded up, locked down, and on edge. After chaos overnight, clashes between protesters and law enforcement. Officer down, right there. Officer down. You can hear gunfire. 
in this streaming police video from the area where two Louisville police officers were shot. Their injuries serious, but not life-threatening. Last night's situation could have been so much worse for our, off our officers and for the people who were protesting when the gunfire rang out. There continues to be an uneasy tension here. The day after a grand jury announced no Louisville police officer will be directly charged in the death of Breonna Taylor. Her family, as do I, think these proceedings were a sham proceeding that did not give Breonna Taylor a voice. The decision to only charge former Louisville officer Brett Hankinson with wanton endangerment for spraying shots into a neighboring apartment sparking outrage across the country. Thousands pouring into the streets, frustrated, emotional, and at times violent. Violence will only be a source of pain, not a cure for pain, and we know that violence is never the answer. Our community is hurting. Many in this community also angry and about what comes next. Jay Gray, NBC News, Louisville. And facing a major backlash from staff and online, one of Canada's biggest social media companies has pulled back from a contract with a U.S. government agency. Vancouver-based Hootsuite now says it won't proceed with a project for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE. Employees criticized the deal in a series of tweets saying it didn't align with the company's values. ICE has been the subject of widespread criticism for its role in deporting undocumented immigrants from the U.S. and separating immigrant children from their families. In a statement, Hootsuite's CEO says the company has listened to its employees and will not proceed with the contract. A Calgary woman who's faced a lot of trauma and overcome adversity is taking on a unique challenge to raise awareness about the depression she has battled. Global's Jill Croto explains. It's often been said the true mark of someone's character is how they respond in the aftermath of trauma. Stephanie Thompson truly found her purpose from her pain, an experience that almost killed her. My story uh, started just over three years ago. I was downtown in the city of Toronto and after a night out was approached by a man who claimed to be an Uber driver. Uh, unfortunately, he was not an Uber driver, he was posing as one. I got in the vehicle uh, and unfortunately was trapped and raped and, and assaulted. It's her brave instincts that saved her that night and it's that same intuition which led her to a courageous challenge like no other. You feel completely consumed by darkness and it is very hard to even see a light and think that you're going to be okay and think you're going to make it through. Her survival spirit compelled her to do something that mirrored those bleak bouts of depression, running blindfolded. I can't see a single thing, so for hours of running without seeing anything and just being consumed by your thoughts, so I have triggers and flashbacks and things that hit me as I'm running. Her trust was without question betrayed, but it turns out it's the one thing she needs to put her blind faith in. Good job trusting her guide runner. I take it really seriously. Uh, we talked about it a lot. She's literally putting herself in my hands. Every day I'm moved and inspired by their people and their stories, saying to me, Stephanie, you're the reason that I shared my story. You're the reason that I wake up. It's so important for me to keep moving forward, literally. Jill Crotel, Global News. Well, our 60th anniversary celebration continues with a look at the crime of the decade. 
Then he ticked off every box on the psychopath checklist. How a popular Vancouver radio host once almost got away with murder. And in sports, the Whitecaps wiped out how the team is reacting to such an embarrassing loss. The Whitecaps have some explaining to do, <laughs> am I right, Squire, well, yeah. after that win well, or loss last night? They kind of looked like they had their act together, and then they suddenly went in reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night, the Vancouver Whitecaps lost 6 nothing to LAFC. It could have been worse, actually. LAFC probably thought the more they score, the more they would have to hug, and that's not good social distancing. So they took their foot off the gas in the second half, which was fine because they were ahead 5-0 after just 33 minutes. I think that's the fastest five goals in the start of a game in MLS history. And just like the fans, Whitecaps boss Axel Schuster was getting angrier and angrier after each and every goal. Into the heart of the penalty area and one nil. Who plays it short this time. Bikel got a nudge, not enough, and a great goal by Bradley Wright Phillips. Young players, that's a nice ball into the box for Diego Rossi. Charge down and 3-0. That's a good thing that the journalists are not that close to the spotting director like in Germany. I was totally pissed yesterday, so I was upset. I was, I was, I was, I had to be careful with myself not to, to, to say the wrong things. But one thing he did say was he wants answers immediately as to what happened. How did a team that had won three of its last four games suddenly look like they have never played together before? We have done things wrong. There's, I, I, I don't see any answer at the end that is like, oh, we did everything right, but it was the un, one unlucky day. It was not like that, no. Um, you can have games like that, that can happen, but that was not the game yesterday. The Whitecaps still have 10 games left, so there is time to change things. And they are a bit out of sorts right now because, of course, they have to stay in Portland the rest of the year. But that excuse won't be used for this DOA in L.A. But one conclusion that Schuster will not come to is that the 6 nothing loss means he has to start thinking about a coaching change. So it's nothing we, we are discussing right now. It's nothing that is on my plate right now. Uh, we are we are preparing the team for the next game. We 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 as I said, uh, the right time to ask this question is also in December, because I'm not I'm not a person. I will never be a person that uh, makes his decisions only because of one game. Right now, odds makers have Seattle quarterback Russell Wilson as the favorite to win the NFL's MVP award, and if he keeps playing the way he has in the first two games. That's a pretty safe bet. Right now he's completing around 82% of his passes. Now he's not going to keep it going like that, but still. Most of this is because of him, but also his offensive line is playing a lot better than it did last year when Wilson was tied for the league lead and being sacked. The pass protection was so solid that you saw Russell in command of the rhythm and he was able to, at times when things didn't look open enough for him, he, he bought more time and he used that to throw it and he also used that to run really effectively. Um, I'm really excited about that connection with our guys up front and, uh, and Russ feeling the timing and the security in the pocket. I think it's the best we've looked in some time. And considering Russell Wilson has never received even one vote for MVP during his career, he too is hoping the offensive line can keep him better protected this season. You know, I, I think for me, 
you know, um, you know, I want to be regarded as one of the best to ever play this game. You know, to be honest with you, I think it's part of the process, and, and hopefully, you know, I can, you know, win enough games and do enough special things as a team to be able to do that. It's a team award, really. I, th- I think, you know, in terms of the MVP, you know, it's it's really a special award because it's, it's everybody's involved in it, and uh, hopefully, I can be a part of that, and hopefully, we can be a part of that as a team. Ryan Fitzpatrick, whose beard is almost as long as his career. Miami and Jacksonville tonight. Good start for Fitzpatrick and the Dolphins. That's Preston Williams with the touchdown there. It was 14-7 when the old man with the beard dropped back and threw another TD pass to Mike Gesicki. At halftime, they are surprising Jacksonville 21-7. To the Blue Jays, who if they win tonight, guarantee themselves a playoff spot. It's pretty much a done deal, but Vladdy Guerrero and the Jays just have to beat the Yankees to make sure it happens this evening. Vladdy Guerrero, solo shot in the eighth, or make that his eighth, I should say, one nothing for the Jays in the second. Sixth inning, Alejandro Kirk, double inside the bag at third. One run will score. Guerrero's going head first for another. Safe. And the Jays at last check are closing in on that clinch. 4-1 in the ninth over New York. There you go. That's a big load coming down the third baseline there. <laughs> All right, thanks very much, Squire. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Chris. We have reaction to the story we brought you last night about bearded Mounties being moved from the front lines to desk duty, and conservation officers are assuring Squamish area residents that a grizzly bear captured there two weeks ago has not returned. There's also some information you should know as bears get ready to hibernate. Plus, a week and a half after that devastating fire on the New West waterfront, the flames have finally been put out. We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11, Chris. All right. Thanks very much, Jay. And uh, when we come back, we continue our reflection on 60 years in the TV business with the 1960s whodunit that became known as the milkshake murder. That's next. Global BC's 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician-referred hearing provider. It's been fun and very interesting celebrating Global BC's 60th anniversary coming up October 31st. And we also want to take a look back at some of the big weather events over the decades. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us once again with a look at the top weather event of the 1960s. That's right. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so that's right. I'm going to highlight one decade each week over the next few weeks. And tonight, the 1960s, with what some experts say is the worst storm on record in the Pacific Northwest. Now, Typhoon Frida. Yes, the remnants of this typhoon hit the B.C. coast late at night on October 12, 1962. The storm was so fierce, some say the trees were breaking off and flying across roads. In B.C. alone, it caused seven deaths and more than $600 million in damage. That's according to B.C. Hydro's estimate in today's dollars. Now, the storm still holds one of the highest gusts on record at YVR at 126 kilometers per hour, but parts of Vancouver Island experienced gusts that were even stronger at 145 kilometers an hour. Now, many of our viewers held on to their newspapers after the storm completely devastated Vancouver. More than 4,000 
1,000 trees were knocked down, including one-fifth of Stanley Park completely decimated. And BCTV News was there, of course. And next week, Chris, we're going to highlight the 1970s, of course, with the spring flood of 1972 in Kamloops. That was a major one. So hope everyone stays tuned for that. Look forward to that. We've got more good stuff tonight, too. Thanks very much. Uh, Christy, tonight in our look back on 60 years of Chan television, those are the call letters, bringing you the news, we look at a murder that shocked the province and became known as the Milkshake Murder. It involved adultery, a high-profile radio celebrity, and white-spot milkshakes laced with arsenic. Ted Chernecki shows us how. Well, I was listening to a, a detective play last night. Little did anyone at CKNW know at the time, they were working with a psychopath, an on-air promotions guy named Renny Castellani, also known as the Dizzy Dialer. He finally found out who did it anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, but it wasn't the guy I thought it was. It was probably the Dizzy Dialer that did it. The idea was that he would phone someone, usually a fairly well-known person, and uh, tell them a, a, stale, a tale that was incapable of belief. And then at the very end, he'd say, aha, I got you, I'm the dizzy dialer. In her book, Murder by Milkshake, Eve Lazarus describes how popular Castellani was with co-workers and the public. Smart, handsome, articulate, and very creative. Just don't get in his way. Rainey ticked off every box on the psychopath checklist. In 1964, when divorce wasn't easy, Castellani's wife Esther was in the way of Rennie marrying 25-year-old MW receptionist Lolly Miller. Slowly, Esther started to get sick, and no doctors could figure out why. What was not known was that, this came out in the trial, that uh, Rennie was taking milkshakes to her that were laced with arsenic. It's a horrible way to die, but diabolically clever, because if it's given in small doses, as he did, it mimics other causes. It mimics viruses and, and all sorts of different things. In another on-air promotion, Castellani sat atop the big Bomax sign for about nine days, vowing to stay up there until a set number of cars were sold. As Rini was up on the Bomax sign for that time, Esther got better and better while she was in hospital. She just gradually improved. And the day after he came down, her health went right down. She completely deteriorated and she died very quickly afterwards. Well, dial M for murder. Investigators exhumed Esther's body and through analyzing hair follicles could determine when and how much arsenic was in her body. That happened here in the former city morgue, now Vancouver's police museum. The story is on full display here. Janine, Renee and Esther's daughter was 11 years old when her mom died and 55 years later she still gets choked up. Happy, funny, loving, kind. She was a wonderful lady. I spent a lot of time with her. She was sheltered from this story for most of her life, but when Murder by Milkshake was published just two years ago, suddenly everything made sense. Wow. That is somebody that my dad that I did not really know. That was really hard. It's the most inhuman thing I think one person can do to another, and that is to deliberately poison them, knowing that they're suffering every day and suffering even more as you add to it by adding more poison. It's just unforgivable. Rene was convicted and sentenced to hang two weeks before Canada withdrew the death penalty. 
Within two years in prison, he was getting day passes and full parole after 11 years. He died of pancreatic cancer in 1982. As ad men go, he was the maddest of all. Ted Chernecki, Global News. What an amazing story. And tomorrow we're going to take a look at the British invasion that swept into Vancouver in our anniversary coverage of the 1960s. That's tomorrow on the News Hour. And Wayne Cox was there. It, I remember him <laughs> telling us the story of that. It'll be good to chat with him. I think he still has the ticket stub. No doubt. <laughs> Probably. Very cool. Okay, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure. So widespread rain pushing in overnight. The heaviest and strongest, heaviest rain and strongest winds will be early tomorrow morning, easing up late in the morning. But still, leave yourself extra time for your commute to work. You'll definitely need it. Not too bad over the weekend with a few showers, but let's key in on next week, shall we? Uh, yes, yeah, some sunshine in store for us Monday and Tuesday. It looks like that pattern will last for a few days. A little bit of summer coming back mm -hmm. in early fall, maybe. All right. Thanks very much. Beautiful shot there from Global One. Have a great night, everybody. See you tomorrow.